we're going to do it. Last uh, time we had uh, talked about fellowship the entire period, and so I was going to go ahead and finish that up in a discussion type way. It was a whole lot of, of lecture and all last time be discussion. And I was, did it specifically because of uh, uh, we had several of the college young people here last time, more than, than we have this time. And they had a, a difference that came up at uh, Tennessee Tech with the Student Center uh, concerning, I think they had, a, if I understand it, a girl there that had, had led singing and led a prayer and everything, and they got into discussion as to the female part, you know, and how much of a leadership and everything. And apparently there was some disturbed and, and hurt, and there was a little hard feeling on what happened. And so anyway, I told them, at least in, in my view, and that that the real problem is not so much that particular thing, which has to be studied, obviously, but is an attitude towards fellowship uh, among Christians because uh, if you if you sit down and, and study that to the point you see exactly alike, well, another issue is going to come up, and then another one, and another one. I've been a Christian now for uh, 34 years, and there's never been a year in all those 30 years that from when, within just the small fellowship I've been a part of that there's always an issue and there's always divisions. And every issue I've known to come along has resulted in, in some division and hard feeling. And so I think that the real thing is this thing of fellowship. And then after you settle that, then you look at these individual things and the way that they can be uh, handled. And so anyway, we're, we're going to look at that and discuss it. And I'm saying this for the... Uh, uh, tape that this is the 8th of May. Uh, the discussion is informal. And nobody has uh, prepared any notes or anything like that. And there may be things said and everybody where you're just thinking out loud and that's good. And I, I believe personally when you go to the church Bible study that you ought to be able to think and make statements that, that, you don't, that you're not necessarily convinced one way or the other and, and sound them off other people and and because a lot of times there, you don't know the weakness of a particular argument until you've sounded it off others. And that you ought to be able to do that without people getting disturbed or offended or, or wanting to write you up or anything of that nature. And so uh, what is put forth here tonight is put forth from that vein, uh, a study with some observations uh, on the subject of fellowship. And it definitely is subject to uh, going back and revising or making any other comments. So we'll look at that and talk and see what happens to our time. And then uh, at the end, uh, John had uh, uh, given me some passages that once before, what was it, John, several times before we had studied uh, uh, demons? And John had some questions on that as to uh, what is involved in the casting out of demons and things like that. And so we'll look. Uh, some at that, you know, give it the time. And if we run out of time on this, John, we'll get to it and, and discuss it. We'll do it in the same way, in just an open discussion type thing. And I mentioned that uh, being able to sound out because the one thing was interesting to me. Uh, I went to the uh, uh, banquet they had a couple of weeks back. And so anyway, one of the young people that had come up here uh, was very nice, but still they said that they would not be able to come up here anymore because something had been taught that they didn't agree with. And therefore they, you know, therefore they couldn't come uh, from, from that standpoint. 
that, that person was not here when we studied fellowship. They were here at something else. What happened when that person was here before, Mark had brought up the question. It wasn't part of really the subject that night. But sometime before, Mark had been here, and we had studied the destruction of Jerusalem and the downfall of the Jewish nation and talked about the second coming of Christ and everything. And we actually did it over a period of several times, and it was stated that the best way to study that is to take the time to study it in several sessions or not bother to get into it. In fact, uh, that's been my experience with any controversial issue. If, if somebody's not willing to take the time and spend several sessions, don't bother getting into it because uh, you, you're just not going to have a sufficient time at all to examine and handle everything. So anyway, Mark brought up a question pertaining that, and so I just went ahead and answered his question without going into all the background or anything like that. Well, that was the thing that precipitated that, uh, that statement. So here's a person really that didn't know the real reasoning behind even the statement, but the statement was made in answer. But the point I'm making on that is to show the importance of this subject of fellowship. The person that made that statement to me is a very sincere person, very conscientious and very strong belief in the Bible. But that is an attitude that exists among many conservative people. It's not just within the fellowship that I've been involved with, no. That is an attitude that exists among many conservative Christians that they feel extremely uncomfortable anytime they find that uh, somebody has a different view of some particular doctrine than they do and, that, and they wonder just how close can I get or how much can I participate with somebody that, that I believe is teaching wrong. You know, will I be supporting him in his evil work or, or something of that nature? Because of that, Bible studies in uh, conservative churches are really not very open. Uh, I visit uh, several of the groups in the community here and uh, the ones that we've been a part of. And, and on the one hand, they say they're there to study the Bible. But you let somebody in the audience, and I'm thinking of like Brother Cameron over in the place where he's at right now. Jack knows Brother Cameron. And uh, you let somebody in the office begin to make suggestions or to challenge a traditional view that's held by that group. And right away, everybody begins to look back. There's a silence. There may be an emotional statement. I've been in there when people would get up and walk out because they'd, they'd become so disturbed. And that individual could rest assured that nobody would ever call on him to, uh, to lead in prayer again. He'd never wait on the Lord's table or have any official part. He can just come. So consequently, in that environment, people regularly have questions. And they may even hear a preacher make what they think is a weak argument on some point. But they're very hesitant about coming out and putting, putting their head out on the block for somebody to chop it off. And so they, they tend to hold back. That is not conducive to learning. Well, you, it's, it's not conducive to re-examining anything. And yet it, it is one thing, it is an attitude that pervades among conservative groups. Now I was going to say that you mentioned Brother Cameron. One of the members said to me, I don't know why he comes. Why don't he go where he does agree? It's like because he was... Just right. different or questioning things sure. that made them uncomfortable. So it's, why don't he go? You know, he's messing yeah. up our little group, you know. Right. He would differ. Like when I would teach a class, Brother Cameron was an older man. He's in his 80s now. Lovable, spiritual. I believe with all my heart, if I make it to heaven, going to be there with Brother Cameron. But man, he wouldn't the least bit backward. And so he differed with me on several points. And he would always, he, nobody could differ in any better nature than what he did. 
but it bothered some that he just couldn't see this particular point exactly like that I was teaching it. Well, the, the point that we differed on affected our behavior not one bit, or our worship, or anything like that, but it still bothered. Well, he went to one church of the same fellowship that, uh, that I've been a part of, and they withdrew fellowship from him because he differed with them on some point. They had nothing against his practice, but he just differed with them on some particular doctrine, and, and he spoke out in a class, and so they wound up withdrawing fellowship. The group he's with now, he goes all the time, and they will not accept him as a member. And so here's an old man, studious, spiritual, godly in life, willing to conform his actions to even the practice of the group, but unacceptable. Uh, by the way, we do accept him over there. There was just, she makes it, one person made a comment, but he can fellowship with us anytime. But two groups there, two conservative fellowships, neither one of them will have him as a member because of that type thing. And even in other places that would, they would make sure that he never taught or anything like any, anything of that nature. So it's like we have on the one hand uh, so-called liberal groups where anything and everything goes. Uh, and, and, and the idea is to, to change for change's sake so many times. And then on the other hand, we have the conservative groups who honestly respect the Bible as the Word of God, but on the other hand are so scared that somebody is going to cause somebody to deviate from what they know is the right path or the right pattern that they create an atmosphere that's uncomfortable to, to speak out in. And, and in fact, uh, uh, give you another example. The church uh, where my mom goes and Barbara and I visited up there, they got a young man, I say young, in his 30s, as a preacher. All right, here's a guy that has gone to school. He's very sincere. In my judgment, I would have, I've heard him several times, in my judgment, the best preacher they've had all the years that church has been in existence. Uh, he's just full of enthusiasm. He's deep and spiritual. And so after being so happy that they found that kind of person, I go back, and they're trying to get rid of him. The elders are, because he's unsound. He's, he's unsound. And so you know what his sin was? His wife teaching a ladies' class in her home, and oh, that's something extra. She don't have to do that. The discussion come up about whether or not she could use a piano in a wedding in the church building or for some other, and, and she made it clear that she saw no problem whatsoever there. And then somebody said, well, then somebody might get the idea that it's okay to use it in worship, you know. And, uh, but anyway, whatever it was, she didn't really even come out and in, endorse it. But then word got back to the elders that she was teaching it's okay to use a piano. And so then they began planting people in her studies, and one girl, see, it's my niece, one girl, that my niece, they had asked her, would they go sit in the study and then report back to them as to what was said? And then they began watching him and, and, and anything they could grab. And eventually it came to the point that he's, he just, he's going to have to resign. Uh, and, and, and in other words, there's no big difference. The, the guy practices and worships just like they do. But they have to, unless he fits a mold where he agrees with the elders on every single solitary point, they would have problems there. Well, I don't know how many times that this has happened. I don't know how many times over the years that very good preachers have just simply left it uh, as a result of that, of that kind of thing. I don't know how many times divisions have occurred. 
So what I'm saying in all of this, the, the subject of fellowship is extremely important. And all of us here are, are educated people who have the ability to talk and speak and, and think and all. And I think we need to learn this better than just enough for our, our own intuitive understanding. But we need to learn it so we can sit down and talk with other people and reason because the people that create these kind of atmospheres I'm talking about are not insincere. They are sincere. They have, in my judgment, a wrong view of fellowship and, and what's involved in, in, in Christians uh, being together. Now, anybody want to make any observation, comment, or pose any question that will become part of the discussion as we finish up on where our study ended last week, or the week before last? As weak as the church is here in Grundy County, we have two good ministers that, I mean, you know, they got good knowledges, Good, not they have a good knowledge of the Bible, each of them, and yet they worship in their own home because they they feel like that they differ with the group about something. Every group they go down here to group lead and they differ with them about something. They come to Collins and they differ there. They come go to Tracy and they have some difference. So they feel like that. Well, I can't fellowship that. So they're in a home. And one of them just extremely sincere. Yeah, one of them very sincere and very moral, but he's in his home by himself because he cannot find a group to, that agrees with him on every point. And when he came to our study, uh, Jack was here the night that he came, uh, he refused to drink anything or eat anything because he cannot eat or drink with us because of the... And by the way, I don't even believe the falsehoods that the other brethren do. It's just that I associate with... I fellowship people that he believes is wrong. That, that's my sin, basically that I fellowship other people within the church that he personally does not because they're wrong. And although I differ with them on the particular point, I still recognize them as brothers and sisters in Christ, and I can sing and pray with them and things like that. So it is. It's, it's a very important thing. Mark? Well, the references of that are made to false doctrines and watching out for false doctrines, etc. in the New Testament. What type of things... What were the false doctrines that, that Paul was actually alluding to, and can we apply those to the traditional church doctrines that, of today? Okay. Because uh, that's, what, that's what happened. They're saying they're false teachers, teaching right. false doctrines, and so forth. Is that what he was actually talking about when he... Okay. When he, uh, that's, that's good. It, it, there are some things. We're going we'll uh, to look at one passage to start with, that has been used by conservative churches, and I'm not talking about just the fellowship that I've been a part of, but others, to show that you could not have fellowship with somebody that taught different than you believe on some particular biblical doctrine. But yet we'll look at it in its context and see what is the real doctrine there that there is not to be. In other words, that there are certain things that it takes to even be a Christian. And all of them in the New Testament were in agreement on that. Obviously, number one, belief in God. Number two, belief in the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. And your trust in Him. Three, your repentance of your sins. And your recognition of Christ as your, as your trust, uh, as, your, as your sacrifice for your sins. Uh, some things like baptism was not even debated in the New Testament because it was a direct command. It was explained to them, and they just obeyed it. 
And that was it. There was no, there was never even something, there was an argument or anything like that. All right, now, there were, when we read the New Testament, there are things that they differed on, and they argued, and they fussed, and, and, and yet they were in fellowship all the time they were coming to a better understanding of these things. Then there were those things that there was no toleration on, that you marked. And and you and and so there the question on the thing is what what is the difference there you know what are these things that that uh, there is no compromise on and then what are those areas where there is room for people to have differences it's not saying that there's not a truth there but there is room for differences from the standpoint that all human beings number one are finite that means that there's a very good chance that no one of us ever at any one time know all truth. And number two, we all come to truth after we come into Christ. We all come from different environments. And therefore, we have different prejudices, different biases, uh, different advantages, different disadvantages. And therefore, that uh, we have different falsehoods that we believe. And what may be very easy for you to grasp from the Bible, because you've never been taught it in a false way, may be very difficult for me if I had been taught that in a false way for a number of years. And so we see that, for example, some things that Jews had real problems with, Gentiles embraced just like that. And some things that Gentiles had real problems with was a non-issue to the Jew. Uh, they, they, had, they, they, they had no problem with that whatsoever. And so the background played a part. And so then what we have to do is determine where where is this? All right, now, to, to introduce it here, let me give you a statement that is in this realm of, uh, of fellowship that, that has been preached within the fellowship that uh, most of us have been a part of through the years. I was taught initially after conversion in the sermons I heard that the Bible taught in three ways. Anybody want to give me those three ways? That the three distinct ways that the Bible teaches. Direct command. Direct command. Example. Example. And inference. Okay? And that's right. Taught in three ways. So then what we do, we take direct commands and we say this is, uh, and we bind that, you know, make it a matter of fellowship and all. But then we go to examples. And for example, uh, let's talk about the Lord's Supper. What of it is a command and what part of it is an example that is being followed? As often as you do this, do remember some of the commands? Okay. Is there a command to partake of it every first day of the week? No. All right. Is there an example of them doing it that is so obvious that you know it's the Lord's Supper they're doing every first day of the week without you having to look very closely at the passage and do some interpreting? In other words, is there an example where it says the brethren meet every first day of the week uh, and are partaking of the Lord's Supper? Is there an example that says that? Breaking bread and act, but then again, okay. Does it does the uh, does the New Testament sometimes talk about Christians meeting to break bread for a meal and sometimes meeting to break bread for the Lord's? Okay, it it, it did. Um, okay, the point is that. Uh, we say we so then we say there's the command and then here's an example and so therefore it teaches that you partake of it every first day of the week 
Okay? But the example doesn't really stay. It, it says the, the, the church gathered on the first of the week and broke bread. And we look at that and we see, well, uh, Jesus was raised on the first of the week. Um, it seems only natural that they would partake of the supper on the first of the week since he rose. Uh, the breaking bread is used sometimes to refer to the Lord's Supper. Therefore, we in, interpret that this is an example where they did it on the first day of the week. And therefore, we should do it every first day of the week today. By the way, I'm not arguing against taking the Lord's Supper on the first day of the week. I hope nobody misunderstands that. But I'm just using this. The Bible teaches one way. Now, there's a direct command. And then we have an example, all right? An inference is where you, you don't even have an example of something, but you infer, for example, whatever you believe about the, Holy, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit will come as a result of your inference from certain passages of Scripture. Correct? In other words, I don't know a place that, that just says, this is the way that the Holy Spirit indwells Christians, and etc., etc., and, and this way is wrong, and this way, etc. But we just read certain things, and we draw a conclusion on that. And so there, there's an inference that we come. And this is true of any number of, of Bible doctrines. you know. And that's the way, by the way, we understand a lot of things. All right, so what happens then is that it's taught from the standpoint of fellowship within uh, the group that I've been a part of that anywhere there is a command, anywhere there's an example, anywhere there is a necessary inference, what is called a necessary, necessary inference, then that is what the Bible teaches on that, and that is the matter of fellowship that is formed on, on that point. And so... Uh, if a person agrees that you should obey the command to take the Lord's Supper, that's fine, but that's really not good enough. He has to also acknowledge that it's every first day of the week and only on the first day of the week. And uh, the same would be true with uh, something in the, in the inference uh, category. Uh, for example, that uh, there may be a, a subject over here like we've discussed concerning the second coming. And that, and that he would have to have the same inference from that passage uh, because, after all, it's, it's so obvious that uh, in, order to, to be the, in order to be in fellowship. Okay, now, the man who originated that statement so far as history is concerned was a man by the name of Thomas Campbell, the father of Alexander Campbell. And he preached his sermon in 1809. And here's his sermon as he preached it. And this is the way it was believed and practiced in the Restoration Movement. And when they were calling people back to the New Testament church and said, we can all be in fellowship if we just throw our creed books away and go back to the Bible. Okay, and yet and they were coming together by the thousands and this movement was growing by leaps and bounds. He said, the Bible taught in these three ways just mentioned. But, he said, the only thing that we can ever bind on another person without reservation is a direct command of God. And, of course, you can go to these examples. The person that loves God keeps his commands, etc. He said when it comes to an example, unless there is a direct command specifying that example, one could never know but that that example might simply have been an expedient way that they decided to carry out that particular command and that it was never intended to be something that was just bound on somebody in a way that you couldn't do it in any, in any other way. When it came to inference, he said, inference involved comprehension of a number of passages. 
And no one could expect anybody to believe further than that person's, agree with you, any further than that person's ability to perceive and understand and to follow you. In other words, you, if he didn't see it that way, you couldn't expect him to, if he, that there would have to constantly be study on the matter. So consequently, in the Restoration Movement, the matter of fellowship initially was direct commands. It was belief in the inspiration of the Bible, the deity of Jesus, salvation in him, and direct commands. So everybody believed you had to repent. Everybody believed you had to believe in Jesus. Those are direct commands. Everybody believed that you should be baptized into Christ. That was a direct command by the Lord himself and by the apostles. Well, then, when it came to things, for example, like instrumental music and worship, everybody knew there was no direct command involved. There was no example involved. And everybody agreed that whatever you believed on that subject, you believed as a matter of inference from passages of Scripture. So their attitude was that, uh, that if you was in a group, we ought to respect one another's conscience, and you should never bring that in where somebody couldn't do it in good conscience. But on the other hand, if somebody else had it, and they all wanted it, you couldn't judge that group. And so consequently, within the Restoration Movement, some of them had instruments and some did not. And it was actually years and years later in the Restoration Movement, and going all the way up to 1849, before they finally split on, on that particular thing. And, and it became something where you had two different fellowships, and one said that we cannot fellowship you as long as you believe that is okay. Well, then what we're trying to do now, we're going to look at some passages, is what about that line? Do we draw the line at direct commands? Do we draw it at examples? Do we draw it at inferences? Uh, you know, in other words, can you draw the line to fellowship from the New Testament standpoint on some point where there's no command or example, but whatever it is you believe, you believe it from interpretation of, of scriptures. I mean, is it right? Uh, to draw the line of fellowship at that point and say you have to agree with me on this or you know that we cannot be in fellowship didn't a lot of that get started with like when there was a question as to whether or not something was permissible that the brethren said well let's do the safe course we know this is okay and then the safe course over a, a period of years became a right. dogmatic law right. you a, have to do it this way a safe course was uh and by the way, I'm a firm believer in the, in the safe course. A safe course was something that, that everybody could see and agree on, and there may be some that could think, well, you could do this also, but we all can agree on this, and so this is what we'll do. But then individually, we're not going to bind. Well, then it's like uh, Barbara said, sometimes a safe course, after it was practiced for a period of several generations and preached, you have another generation that comes up and has never even heard the argument on the other side because only one side has been practiced and only one side preached. They haven't even heard the argument, and so the safe course becomes embedded in their mind as fact. And then they develop preachers from that generation who began to preach it as absolute fact. Uh, it's been very interesting to me. One of the most interesting studies I had when I was going through graduate school at the uh, uh, what is now Southern Christian University, it was Alabama Christian School of Religion then, was the study of church history. And, and to show how that uh, some of these people who never thought of certain things in a dogmatic way and recognized a safe course situation 
didn't know that, that several after their death, people would actually come along and, and be teaching this as if it were dogmatic fact in, in that realm. Let's look at Second uh, John, look at verse 9. It's a good verse. Uh, a good example of that is like in the beginning with the singing. The scriptures say, sing and make melody in your heart. And so the brethren said, well, we know we can do that in faith. And so that's what we should do. And then before you know it, the brethren was, had added something to that command. Sing and make melody in your heart. And if you use an instrument, you're going to tell, basically. Yeah. That, that was, you know, what was implied and what was... Uh, and that was added, sort of like, I thought your example was really good with the Jews um, when you used it. I don't know, it's been several months ago, but Jesus had said, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. And the Jesus had added to that, and if you help anybody out on the Sabbath, oh. you know, that's wrong. And so that was their interpretation of it, and it had become law. And of course, Jesus rebuked them. And, uh, well, that was a good case of interpretation and inference. The command was, remember the Sabbath day, keep it holy, and you was to not to do any work. Mm -hmm. Okay? Well, then, from that, some inferred that you could do absolutely nothing, uh, you know, on it. And, and, and there was differences as to what you could do, you know, and how far. So then when Jesus actually healed a man on the Sabbath, that he was rebuked as a sinner, and, and condemned for breaking the Sabbath. And remember, that's when he made the statement that the Sabbath wasn't made for man. I mean, the man wasn't made for the Sabbath. The Sabbath was made for man. And that when you interpret a command of God in such a way as to pose a burden on man, and you can't even help him out, and he says, you can do good on, on, on the Sabbath day. But again, they had taken something and made some inferences, and they wound up adding to a command that God had, had given, and they had done this on a number of things. Okay, look at this in verses 9 through 11 of Second John. Uh, Mark, read just verses 9 through 11. Read over here. Uh -huh. three marks. That's, right. That's kind of a crazy statement, wasn't it? That? Three marks in the room. We'll have three to pray, I mean, Anyway, okay. Anyone who runs ahead and does not continue in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever continues in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not take him into your house or welcome him. Anyone who welcomes him shares in his wicked work. Okay, now, over the years on the thing of fellowship among conservative Christians, there are three passages tied side by side, supporting one another, that are used to, to limit fellowship to only those people that agree with you on all on the vast majority of, of everything. And that's, this is one of them. Anyone who runs ahead does not continue in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever continues in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. All right, then if anybody comes to you and does not bring this teaching, in other words, anything that Jesus taught about, or the apostles, because he sent the apostles out, so anybody that comes and they're teaching different than what you think Jesus taught about anything or the apostles taught about anything, then that is without God. Don't have anything to do with those people because then you share in their wicked work. That's why the young person that, that uh, for example, I mentioned earlier said that they could no longer come to the study because something was taught. In other words, this person knows that I believe in Jesus, that I believe in God, that I believe in the inspiration of the Bible, I believe in a godly life. 
and all of this, but there is a particular doctrine that I believe different than what she believes, and therefore she could not in any way participate in the in the study. And this would be a passage, and that's the way I heard it preached. By the way, I preached this passage that way. That's what I was taught, and that's what I preached. All right, now this passage is tied with another passage in the New Testament. And I'll just quote it, and then we'll look at it. In Acts 17, in verse, uh, it's either 30 or 31. In times of ignorance, God winked at. But now he commands all men everywhere to repent. So it said there was a time over in the Old Testament when God winked over people's ignorances. But now he's not winking over ignorance anymore. He commands everybody to repent. So ignorance is no excuse. And Jesus, if Jesus has taught something and you don't understand it correctly, ignorance is no excuse. If Jesus or the apostles has taught something and you haven't learned it, ignorance is no excuse. So, on the one hand, we say that if anybody runs ahead, teaches something that's not quite like Jesus taught it, or the apostles taught it, of course, that would be your interpretation, uh, you cannot participate with that person, support him in any way, you would be a partaker in his evil deeds. So far as this individual that may be very sincere, very conscientious, love the Lord, etc., ignorance is no excuse. So that you still cannot have anything to do with him, even though you know he loves God or believes in Jesus, has repented of his sins, whatever, uh, because he differs with you on this doctrine. Ignorance is no excuse. Look at what it says in Acts 17. These two passages are then coupled with the passage we looked at the last time on fellowship. Nadab and Abihu. Now, if you, if, if, if what I, so then the next statement is, and by the way, I've preached this sermon, I don't know how many times. If you, don't, if you think that sounds too strong to you, that, about ignorance and, and what we're saying here, let's go back and look at old Nadab and Abihu, and you won't think it's too strong. <laughs> so we go back over to Leviticus 10. Nadab, Nadab and Abihu are two priests of God, and they offer up strange fire. Little simple mistake. They, they, just, they just messed up and picked up the wrong fire to light their sacrifice with. And it was therefore a strange fire. God zapped them right on the spot. Killed them dead. Now, if that don't show you that if you're offering up vain worship to God, like using a piano, if strange fire got that, did that to Nadab and Abihu, then you'll burn too. And so that's vain worship. And listen, I'm not paraphrasing. I'm quoting. That is vain worship. Barbara Hurdick preached uh, there over, uh, in the church where I was supporting for a period of time by the man that was there. You will go to hell. We heard a lot, didn't we, You will go to hell. Yeah. <laughs> don't care how sincere you are. Don't care how much money you give. Don't care how much you love the Lord. Don't care how many sins you repented of. Ignorance is no excuse. Look at Nadab and Abihu. Okay. And then we wondered why that everybody that, that was even a distant kin to Christianity thought we were the most judgmental, narrow-minded people they'd ever met in their life, and why, when we held a gospel meeting, that we couldn't beg, borrow, steal enough money to get them in there, that we could only talk to ourselves after they found out about us. That we might get them in there once, but we, we did one of two things. We converted them. We, we scared the dickens out of them with Nadab and Abihu and this ignorance passage and the other one and got them, and got them coming down the aisles like one young man when Brother Bryson was preaching over in Whitwell. Was you there, Jack? 
And this young guy come down there, I don't want to go to hell and burn forever. And he's crying and running down there. And they grabbed that guy and got him, saved him. From, and, uh, so, you know, that uh, that is what has been. You know, I, well, let's look at that. Because if that's right, that's what we want to do. Uh, I mean, that's exactly right. I mean, if, if that's, if, if, uh, if uh, everybody has to understand all the teaching of Jesus and understand all the teaching of the apostles and there's no room for him to ever be wrong or, or misled or misunderstanding of, of anything uh, in order for me to have fellowship with him, you know, then I want to teach it and practice it that way. If ignorance is no excuse, I don't want to leave the impression to anybody's mind that ignorance is an excuse, you know. Enough. But you know something, back when I believed that, I don't, stop. I don't know about you, Jack, or the rest of you with the same background. Back when I believed all of that, I really, in all honesty, didn't enjoy being a Christian that much. Now, I thought I was going to heaven, but I really didn't enjoy it. Because I always thought I might be lost. That I wasn't, maybe I wasn't good enough. That there was something I was doing wrong that I was ignorant of. I'd hear a guy preach a sermon on the fact that a woman ought to be wearing a covering and man, I'd, I'd, I'd spend hours and hours pondering that and I thought, well, well, why worry about it? There's nothing wrong with wearing a covering. Be on the safe side and get that thing on. And so I'd have everybody in the congregation wearing a covering, right, Jack? We didn't want anybody going to hell. <laughs> if, if, that's, if that's what it takes to keep you out of hell, get that covering on, you know. And I did. Barbara wore a covering for four years. I didn't want her to burn, you know. <laughs> and so... And, and that was true with, with anything, you know, that when the church was fighting over whether you could take from the treasure and, and cooperate in the herald of truth or something like that, I just dropped everything and spent hours studying that because, uh, you know, I was being told that, man, if you're with this liberal bunch over there, you're, you're surely going to burn. You know, and, and so I, and I engaged, and, and while I was in a mission work, I engaged in a public debate on it, and, and we just dropped everything. I mean, we, we were out there teaching and trying to baptize people in the Lord, and we just dropped everything so we could argue about uh, this for a week in a public debate, and we got up there like two gladiators and verbally slugged it out, and, and I don't know about him, but I spent weeks in preparation for it and dropped everything so I could do that, you know. So, uh, I'm saying that while I believed and preached that, I don't know about the others that believe and preach it today, but I was never comfortable. I knew deep down that I wasn't willing to say that I had the perfect understanding of everything in the Bible. I, there were still things that I had questioned about. And even when I preached on something like instrumental music, I knew that deep down in the recesses of my own heart, I still had doubts about that. I thought, well... I know you don't have to have it, but are we absolutely positive that that is sinful and wrong and, and people are going to be lost? That I, and I had doubts about that, and, and there was any number of other things. If, if I found out that somebody was in the Masonic Lodge, I, I thought, man, he's going to go to hell if I don't get him out of there, you know, whatever the difference may be on him. So my preaching showed that kind of thing, and I'm sure that there was tension when I taught a class or preached, and, and I didn't feel comfortable myself. Okay, but still, if that's the way it is, you know, that's, that would be. Okay, let's uh, look at this in, in 2 John. Paul, another passage I think that you to is he who's guilty of one sin is guilty of all. Right, James 2.10. James 2.10. Right. 
So we'll look at that context too. Okay, now let's look. We read 9 through 11. But let's look at the whole context and see what happens. Uh, uh, verse 7. Okay? Many deceivers who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh have gone out into the world. Any such person is the deceiver and the antichrist. Watch out that you do not lose what you have worked for, but that you may be rewarded fully. Anyone who runs ahead and does not continue in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever continues in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not take him into your house. What is this teaching here? If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, what is this teaching that he's talking about in this total context? Jesus Christ coming in the flesh. Think of the way John starts his gospel. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and, and the Word came and dwelt among us. Uh, the law was given by Moses. Grace and truth has come from Jesus Christ. These things are written that you may believe. Think of what he's just said in 1 John. For example, look over at 1 John 2, verse 22. Who is the liar? It's the man who denies that Jesus is the Christ. Such a man is the Antichrist. He denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever acknowledges the Son has the Father. Also, see that what you have heard from the beginning remains in you. If it does, you also remain in the Son and in the Father. And this is what he promised us, eternal life. I'm writing these things to you about those who are trying to lead you astray. How were they trying to lead them astray? They were denying that Jesus was God come in the flesh. He starts his letter off saying, this is a message that we have heard. And he begins to, uh, at the very first uh, in 1 John by stating, that which we have heard from the beginning, which we have heard, which we've seen with our eyes, our hands touched, proclaim to you the word of life. Seen, heard, touched. And we want you to understand this so you can have fellowship with us. Look at that in verse 3. And then have fellowship with one another. So this fellowship was based on believing that Jesus was the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God that was coming in the flesh. In 2 John, in 1 John, in the Gospel of John, John is fighting a Grecian philosophy that would eventually evolve and, and become known to the world, and we know it as, as the Gnostics. And going back to Plato, there was this belief among many of the Greeks, that, that the spirit was good, the flesh was evil. Well, since the flesh was evil, there is no way that God could dwell in human flesh. So therefore, Jesus could not be God incarnate because God could not dwell in human flesh because the flesh was evil. So they were attacking the deity of Christ based on this philosophical view that they have. John's argument is, all of the miracles of Jesus, all of the prophecies that were fulfilled, what we have seen with our eyes, our hands touched and handled and talked with after his resurrection, John says he stands proven to be exactly what he claims to be, and that is the Son of God. Don't let these people with their philosophy that is in error and based on false assumptions lead you astray. The reason John keeps talking about in 1 John over and over about the man that does righteous is righteous. And if you love God, keep his commands and all. You see, with this belief of theirs, 
They created a situation where you could live an uh, ugly, ungodly life, and that's just the flesh that's sinning. But the spirit was holy. And so your spirit could still go to heaven, and it's just your unholy flesh. So on the, Jesus couldn't live in the body because it was ugly and, and sinful. But then on the other hand, it was, when you did these ugly and sinful things, it was just the flesh, and your spirit should still go to heaven. So John is writing to counteract this. And he said, no, the man that does righteous, the man who does right is right. The man that loves God will keep his commands. You manifest what you believe in your spirit through your body. Your body doesn't sin. It's not evil. That your body can only do what your mind or your spirit asked it to do. And, and then, on the other hand, Jesus was not evil because he's in, there's nothing inherently evil about the flesh. Jesus was a perfect man because he perfectly kept God's law and therefore he was holy and he offered up a perfect body uh, that had never sinned and was holy and acceptable before God. That's John's context in 2 John. In the first century church, we know that they argued and debated about any number of things. In fact, from all of the letters in the first century, where is this church that has it all together and no problems and they all see everything exactly the same way? We know it wasn't in Corinth, was it? And, and they had so many problems. And of course, they were going to have to work on those and straighten them out. But I'm saying that Paul wrote to those churches because they had problems. And, and, all, and, and where in Acts do we find this group of people that has the same understanding of every point in doctrine? How long did it take the Jews, Gentiles, and then whether or not they had to keep the law of Moses about eating meats and eating food strangled and all that kind of stuff? Well, that, all the scholars are in agreement that, that, that I've read from, that that debate in Acts uh, uh, 15 is somewhere around 49 or 50 A.D. The church has been in existence for uh, 17, 20 years, depending on which calendar you're looking at. And about 17 years, it's been in existence, and here they are still debating and arguing and fussing on this, and the first letter goes out. And so how long it took that letter to circulate, but then they didn't just readily receive it, they still argued and fussed. And, and then when Paul got to Antioch, Peter, who was the great revealer of this truth initially, that God is no respecter of persons, but in every nation he that fears God and worth against righteousness is acceptable to him. What was old Peter doing? He was showing favoritism toward when the Jews came around, he would disassociate with the Jews. Okay, he, when the Jewish Christians come around, he wouldn't eat with the Gentiles, would he? And then when they were weren't around, he'd eat with them. Peter knew the truth, but it shows you that those Jewish Christians still were not accepting that. So what does Paul do? He calls Peter a hypocrite. He, was a, he wasn't living up to it. He was, he was acting not in keeping with his information. And so the way he was with one group was different than the other group. But, it, but in Peter doing that, and he said, you've even led Barnabas astray. It shows you that the majority of Jewish Christians, even at that point, had not embraced that. And they were so strong that even the great Peter, the apostle, was wishy-washy when they came around and wouldn't have anything to do with the Gentiles himself. Peter was, was having a hard time convincing these Jews concerning that. What about the Gentiles when they came in? Did they just embrace this Christian morality and everything right away? Or do we have a, 
a period where they just seem to lasp and go back into their past practices and, and they've got to fight tooth and nail to try to get those people to change. What we see, isn't it? On that, uh, okay. The apostles were baptized by John and, and they understood Jesus as the Lamb of God that took away sins, but they didn't even fully understand the resurrection, did they? Did they have the remission of their sins? At Pentecost, do the apostles understand that there's not going to be a physical kingdom here on this earth? Remember what they say? What Are you ready now to restore the kingdom to Israel? They still didn't understand. It's in Acts 1, isn't it? Yeah, Acts 1. Are you, Acts 1, verse 6. Are you ready to restore the kingdom to Israel? This is in this 40-day period right before Pentecost. They still don't understand it. Uh, part of the confusion in understanding some of these things with the second coming of Christ and the judgment on Jerusalem and things like that is the fact that these people themselves were just coming to an, an understanding that you were not going to have a physical kingdom on this earth or anything of this nature. That's what they had, had believed. So there was any number of things. And, and so what I'm saying is, if what we have just talked about Meccan Fellowship based on somebody understanding everything exactly the way you do is true, I don't think this is the passage that can be used to teach it based on the context. I don't, I don't, the, the, the person here that's running ahead and is not abiding in the doctrine of Christ is, is this person that is leaving the doctrine that Jesus is God incarnate that he is God come in the flesh and that he stands equal with God and he's saying no, Christ and God go together. If you reject Christ, you can't have God. Don't support that. anybody that leaves you with the impression that you can have a relationship with God without Christ. So, I'm not going to fellowship. I cannot fellowship a Muslim and a Jew believes in exactly the same God that we believe in. And he believes in an extremely strong code of mor morality. But I'm not going to fellowship with a Muslim. I cannot with a Muslim or a Jew because he rejects his own Messiah. That Jesus is God come into the flesh. That he believes that he can stand before God without a mediator. That uh, John said that anybody that, that says he can is a liar. And the truth is not any. That we're all sinners and we need to acknowledge it. And we need to acknowledge that Jesus died for our sins. And so, in our fellowship, John is saying, don't embrace anybody that denies that Jesus is the Christ. All right, look at what he says in 1 John 4. Notice to show you that John, this is John's concern all the way through here. Uh, John, read those first uh, three verses there. 1 John 4? Uh-huh. <clears throat> Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirit to see where they are from God. But many false prophets have gone out from the world. But this you know the spirit of God. By this you know the spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. And this is the spirit of the Antichrist, of which you have heard that is coming. And now it is already in the world. Okay. Look at... When John is, how many times have we heard that preached? No, don't believe every spirit, but that's true. We shouldn't. We know that. But who is his false prophet? Somebody that may differ with him on some particular doctrine? 
or is it the person that denies that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh? And every spirit that does not acknowledge is not from God. Every spirit, notice, every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. Remember when Peter, he said, uh, Jesus said to Peter, who do men say that I, the son of man, am? And he said, uh, Lord, some of those guys out there think you're Jeremiah, one of the prophets that's been resurrected. Some of them think you're a great prophet. Well, Peter, that's their observation. What do you think about it? And he said, I believe you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. And he says, Peter, you believe that not because flesh and blood revealed that to you. Flesh and blood is saying that I'm a prophet or I'm like I'm Jeremiah or John the Baptist raised from the dead or something of this nature. But you believe it, Peter, because God has revealed it to you. Peter, you have seen the miracles, and you've heard the teaching, and you have come to recognize that, that I'm the Messiah and that I'm the Son of God. And that was the great truth. And he says, upon this rock, I will build my church. And how often have we pointed out that contrary to what the Catholics have tried to do and have the Lord build the church on a man, that what he's talking about is this great confession of truth that Jesus is the Son of God, the church would be built. And Paul would say the, the church is a building that's in the process of being built, and it's becoming a holy temple to the Lord. The apostles are the foundation, and Jesus is a cheap cornerstone. And so it's built on the acknowledgement of Jesus as, as being the Christ. Now, let's see just how important that is. And what I'm saying is that, that John here, in context, is talking about fellowship based on the embracing of Jesus as the Son of God, the sacrifice for our sins and all. But let's look at how important this is and see that we don't give up anything when you, when you just limit it right where John's doing it. If you believe in Jesus as the Son of God, you literally believe he's the Son of God, that he was resurrected from the dead, he is your sin offering, you have your trust in him. How many of his commands do you want to willfully disobey? How many of his doctrines do you want to misunderstand? How far away from him do you want to get at anything? Can a person who believes that with all his heart willfully continue in a course of something that he recognizes as sin against God? Remember John's statement? Uh, he said, if you're born of God, you cannot sin. And literally, the Greek, it's cannot keep on sinning. John is saying that anybody that has been born of God and that has come to this realization that Jesus is the Christ and put his trust you don't have to worry about that person going out here and willfully continuing in a course of sin. We have been scared. Remember the book we mentioned earlier, Behold the Pattern? We've been scared to limit fellowship to the deity of Jesus based on the fact that we think somebody's going to come in and bring in all kinds of ugly, worldly, ungodly uh, things. The only people who do that are the people who don't believe in Jesus. That if you believe in Jesus, you may be not doing some things right because you're ignorant of that particular point and, and you might have to learn. But I, 
I don't know how you have a person that has put his trust in Jesus and has repented of his sins willfully disobeying God. I, I just don't. That, that, that settles everything. John? Um, in verse in First John 4, uh, talk, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits. Uh, from what you understand, from what, I've, from what you said and what I've read here, the best, from what I've just picked up, the spirit is plural, but he's talking about one spirit. He's just talking about the individual teachers. I think they're right. just like. That's what I was trying to, that's what I was uh, trying to ask. If it's that the spirit of Christ not coming in the flesh, if that was being taught, then, you know, right. with it. And he's saying, test all the spirits. Right. In other words, so he's talking about Christ, the spirit of those, those individuals doing the talking. So the, so the criteria for what you're saying, for, for the spirit, uh, the basis is that if it professes that Jesus Christ is from God, right. then then that then then the spirits other other than that are false. Are false. Okay. Right. And just like to show you even on how it carries down, the when we look at some of the the so-called liberal groups that call themselves Christians, by the way, John is real big. We just finished first John for a number of Wednesday nights. John's real big on this statement of people that claim things, but it's really not that way. Uh, all through First John. I mean, the people that claim, but then that's it. To John, the actions speak themselves. Just because you claim it, don't mean it. So, Jesus dealt with this. Uh, Why call me Lord, Lord, not do the things that I say? Not everyone that saith to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven. That uh, There's going to be a lot of people that claim a, lo a lot of things. But let's look at, we, when we look at some of the, the groups out here that seem to disrespect so many of God's laws. In other words, that... Uh, they're ordaining homosexuals as ministers, even though that it's called sinful here. Uh, the organization of the church that's set forth in here has absolutely no meaning to them whatsoever. They do whatever they want to do. Uh, they, they gear their worship to things that they want to do and in the way they want to do it and everything like that. Did you know that from those same fellows, what do you think in the, among the ministers in that fellowship that they actually think about Jesus? Do you think they believe that he literally is the son of God and was raised from the dead and that the words that he spoke are inspired by God? They don't. Now, the people that are in these groups don't realize that. They honestly, a lot of the people in these groups think that the reason that uh, uh, the, uh, the Episcopal preacher is sprinkling are doing certain other things that is different is because he just has a different understanding than others. And people just have all these different understandings. I've got a Catholic Bible downstairs. Uh, and the comments by the priest... Uh, on baptism in Romans 6 there's the statement that uh, this is the practice of the primitive church that practiced baptism by immersion those people don't have a misunderstanding of that and these other things there's no real difference in all they don't have the same view of the inspiration of the Bible and the deity of Jesus and that's why that they're in that category there's just not that same grasp of a lot of the ministers within some of these groups will not come out and dogmatically, no if, and, or but, 
say that they believe that Jesus was literally God incarnate, that he was the Son of God, and that the resurrection is a historical fact. And so then it's only natural that they feel these other things. See, what, a lot of, what is believed by the higher-ups and the theologians within those groups is that the Bible is not man writing by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. But it's man-inspired in the way Shakespeare is, and it's man seeking after God, and he's evolving and becoming more spiritual as the years pass by. Jesus, the Messiah, was sort of the pinnacle. There would be other Messiahs. But he was sort of the pinnacle uh, of it, you know, he, as far as goodness and things like that. But they don't believe he was literally God incarnate and that he was literally bodily raised from the dead. And so obviously that will show its effect in their attitude towards whether you're talking about homosexuality or any other thing. Uh, and, and, and it's sad, at least to my mind, that so many people who are within those fellowships do not realize that the problem here is not differences of understanding so much as differences of belief concerning Jesus. That's the, that's the key thing. And what I'm trying to say here is that you don't have to worry about people who believe in the deity of Jesus and believe his death, burial, and resurrection and have repented of their sins and have put their trust in him wanting to willfully disobey God push away any commands, do anything wrong. If those people are wrong, it's going to be because they honestly misunderstand something. And if you, and I guarantee you, if you could persuade them of that particular point, they would change. Uh, just like you, any one of you, if you were persuaded of something in a different way than you hold right now, you would change because you honestly believe in the inspiration of the Bible and in the, the deity of Jesus. Okay, uh, back up to Acts 17 now. Let's look at that statement on ignorance. Well, I thought I had that. Acts 17. Look at verse uh, 30. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance. The King James says, in times of the ignorance, God weaked at. But now he commands all, all people everywhere to repent. So there it is. In the past, that's the Old Testament days, God overlooked the ignorance. Now he commands everybody to repent. But what is the ignorance that God overlooked? But it's interesting even before you look at it. It seems to imply that God overlooks ignorance if a person doesn't understand or hasn't had the opportunity to understand what the truth is on a point. That's the implication at that point. Okay? He's in Athens. And he noticed that the place is full of idols. And so he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks as well as in the marketplace. And these philosophers began to dispute and debate with him. And they said this is because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. And they, they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus. And says, we want to know this new teaching that you're presenting. You're bringing some strange ideas to our ears. And all the Athenians and the foreigners, etc., uh, spent their time in nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. And Paul then stood up in the meeting and said, I see that in every way you're very religious. 
And then he talks about even this statue they've got to an unknown God. So he says, now what you worship as something unknown, I'm going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, etc., etc. What does he do? They believe in the Creator. In fact, the Bible teaches we come to believe in the Creator through the creation. Like the, David would say, the heavens declare the glory of God. David said, the fool has said there is no God. The evidence is too strong. Paul said that man is without excuse to not believing in God because the invisible God has declared the things that are. But the creation just lets you know the existence of a supreme being. It doesn't tell you anything about the character or the personality of that creator. So the Gentile, the prophets of God for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years now, 1,500 years since Moses, have spoken only to the Jewish people. And the Gentiles have been left to wander out here. Paul said they were held accountable for believing in a supreme being and they were held accountable to their conscience in Romans 2, 14 through 16. But God winked over their ignorance concerning the true nature of God because they had no revelation on it. But now he says, God is not going to wink over that kind of ignorance anymore. Why? For he, verse 31, the next verse, he has set a day in which he will judge the world in justice by the man that he appointed, and he had given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. So, the good news concerning the true God and his son and his death for man's sin, with the evidence for the resurrection, is now going out into all the world. And so the Gentiles would no longer have the excuse of misunderstanding the nature of the true God because the message was going to everybody. And so there would no longer be an excuse for that. So this context is not a context where Paul or anybody else is trying to teach you that a Christian cannot be ignorant on any single solitary doctrine. First of all, we know that's nonsense. I mean, and who in the world is going to say that everybody that you baptize into Christ, that they're not ignorant on any number of doctrines? Uh, by the way, how many here at the time you had read the New Testament, at the time you became a Christian, had already studied the New Testament and all these doctrines completely through. How many Christians, I wonder, have studied all the doctrines? Uh, I wonder how many within the fellowship we've been a part of, that of those that were not raised in it, that when they became a Christian, had already studied all the arguments about instrumental music, and the Lord's Supper, and, the, and things of this nature. It just so happened that's what was taught in the church where they went, and they heard that, but they really hadn't studied it all through yet. Uh, I hadn't. You know, I, I didn't really care when I was first converted. I thought, well, you don't have to have the piano. And so it's no big deal to me. Well, then after I got in and it became a, a something, I had to study. But my studying about the, what's involved in the instrument, all of it took place years after I actually became a Christian. And some of the other doctrines also. I really didn't study deeply until after I'd become a Christian. So, I'm saying it's a misuse of this passage to take Paul's sermon to Gentiles who believe in God, who have a misunderstanding of his true nature, who tells them that that misunderstanding has been excusable because they had no revelation from God, and they believed in existence through the creation, and that was good. And God winked over their ignorances of his true nature because they had no revelation of that. But now, God would no longer wink over this, because the good news was going out to all mankind, Jew and Gentile, 
and it was going to be backed up with the evidence for the resurrection of Christ. Well, then to take that and force on it some doctrine that, uh, that nobody can be ignorant of anything, that ignorance is no excuse, is a total abuse, in my judgment, of this passage. It has nothing to do with this passage in its context. Just like in, in 2 John 9-11, John is not talking about somebody or some Christians that have some difference on some particular doctrine. John is talking about these guys out here that are denying that Jesus is God come in the flesh. And he's saying that the only spirits that come from God are those that acknowledge that. And anytime you hear somebody that's teaching and denying this, don't support him. Don't receive him into your house and bid him Godspeed because you participate in his evil deeds. If he doesn't have Christ, he's without God. That's what John's saying. Okay, now any comments or observations anybody wants to make? I think another passage Thomas used is not everyone that says unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom. Okay, right. Uh, in this passage, the Sermon on the Mount, who's he talking to? Who's the group that's assembled there? Pharisees, right. They're religious leaders. And, and specifically, although all the Jews are there, who has heard Jesus gladly? The multitudes of the Jews. Who among the Jews is rebelling at everything he says and wants to take his life and is making life miserable for him? The religious leaders. Who are the ones that's going around saying, we are the spokesmen from God, we are the teachers of the law of Moses, listen listen to us, you know. This guy is a gluttonous man and a wine bibbler. John the Baptist has a, has a demon. It was the religious leaders. And so they're talking directly at the Pharisees and the religious leaders. He says, not everyone who saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father who is in heaven. And so the... Jesus then goes on. He states that the will of God is that we believe on him whom God hath sent. If you do that, you're going to take care of all the rest in the, pro in the process. But he's talking to these Jews who on the one hand are saying, remember, when, when they say we believe in God, who did Jesus say your father is? The devil. And they said, our father's Abraham. We know your father's not Abraham. Your father's the devil because you're a liar just like he was. And so he's saying that not all of you people that are saying you believe in God are going to go to heaven. The one that enters the kingdom of God will be the one that does the will of God, who embraces the kingdom as it truly is and is not trying to manufacture a kingdom not, never intended by God and, re, and reject his Messiah. And that's the context of, of that passage. So show, show somebody who on the one hand says, I believe in God, and on the other hand, he rejects Jesus and rejects what Jesus says and refuses to listen to him, and you've got somebody that is, that is in that category. Okay, um, Nadab and Abihu will allude to, because we read that and went over it last time, but what about the context of Nadab and Abihu? They got zapped, but what really was, when we read all ten chapters there, what was the context? They took their duties very lightly. And were they drinking? Or they they were they mm -hmm. In the right after he killed them, he told Aaron. He says, "You don't even mourn for them. Mm -hmm. You don't show any signs of mourning, or I'll kill you too." Mm -hmm. Then the very next statement is, "You're going to treat things holy. Whenever you go on duty, you do not drink wine, and 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 so that and you're going to separate the holy from the the unholy." 
And so direct, right after he kills him, he condemns his own father, says you don't mourn for him. The next statement is, when you go on duty, you don't drink. And you don't drink any intoxicated beverage. Now, okay, why did Nadab and Abihu grab the wrong fire and offer that wrong? Was they in ignorance or, or, I mean, or was they just flat out drunk and really were very flippant in their whole approach to God and they were irreverent and they were all tanked up and so if you want to talk about Adab and Abihu, talk about some preacher that's been sitting down all Sunday morning getting tanked up and then going over here to preach a, a sermon and tell people how to live. And then you've got maybe a comparison with Nadab and Abihu. Or these preachers like Jim and Tammy and others who are on the one hand up here preaching and, and setting themselves up as ministers of the God, but on the other hand they're living unholy and ungodly and, and unrighteous lives. Somebody like that would compare to Nadab and Abihu. And, and when we, what do we notice about sins of ignorance in that context when we read all ten chapters there? Would there have been room for Nadab and Abihu to have made a mistake through ignorance and not been zapped like that or, when we read the whole context? Yeah, they have different offerings. Yeah, it looks up. Uh, right. In fact, the fourth chapter is the, probably the best one. There was the assumption that sometimes the individual people, sometimes their leaders, sometimes the community as a group, and sometimes the priest would make mistakes due to ignorance. And then he said, when you become aware of it, and then you bring your sacrifice. Now, so you actually would have a contradiction if they did something in ignorance and God zapped them because he has time and time again, beginning with that fourth chapter, made the observation that there were going to be times when they, were, when they made mistakes through ignorance. All right, then a key passage, Numbers 15 and 22 through 33. There is the statement that there would be times when the leader, times when the individuals, times when the entire community would sin in ignorance. When they became aware of it, they'd offer their sacrifice. But then he sums up, I think it's in verse 31. He says, but the soul that defiantly sins, that person should be cut off. So he tells you that there's going to be all kinds of times when people sin because of ignorance. When they become aware of it, offer their sacrifice, you don't break fellowship with those people, though. You accept the fact that finite human beings will sometimes be ignorant on some point, or sometimes they'll just simply be a little careless, like we bump in the coffee table, knock the glass over and break it. But we don't compare that kind of thing with willful sin. It's still sin, but it's not willful, and when you become aware of it, you repent of it, and your heart is right. But then he says, in the Old Testament fellowship was broke by an individual that was willfully and defiantly sinning and refused to repent of it. Okay, think about the New Testament. When Christians had abandoned their assembly together because of the persecution and he's trying to persuade them that you, you need to continue to worship and serve, what does he say in Hebrews 10.26? If you continue to willfully sin, there remains no more sacrifice for sins. And so, He's saying there, there is no sacrifice for continued willful sin that you will not repent of. John said that there was a sin unto death and a sin that was not unto death. A sin not unto death, you could pray. God would forgive. A sin that was unto death, you couldn't even pray for God to forgive. 
Well, the only sin that's mentioned in all the Bible that God won't forgive is willful sins that people just simply refuse to repent of. And Jeremiah, for example, was told several times to quit praying for the people because they weren't repenting and therefore God wasn't going to hear the prayer and he, he wasn't, wasn't going to forgive them. So willful sin is defiant and that's where we break fellowship. All right, in 1 Corinthians 5, when Paul told the brethren there to withdraw fellowship from that individual, what was he doing? Anybody remember? Okay, he was living in adultery, wasn't he? Living with his father's wife. He said, this is what you're doing so bad that even the Gentiles don't do this kind of thing. So the guy wasn't ignorant. It was so morally bad that even Gentiles that were not Christians did not accept that kind of behavior. And so he said, don't fellowship him, don't associate with him. And, but then the object even then was to get that person to see how bad you realize that was so he would, he would actually repent and all. But what you have is a willful sinner that's refused to repent. We don't have somebody that, that has an honest misunderstanding of some point or is debating on his own mind which way to go on some issue or has been careless or something of that nature. That's not what we have there. So then now, in your own words, how would you state the thing of, sum up the thing of, of where do you draw the line of fellowship? When you mention commands, direct commands. Okay. And then you mention the, uh, those who reject that Christ came in the flesh and was the Son of God. Okay. Well, can we even be a Christian without that? All Christian, when we say Christian, we mean Christ-like, and all Christianity, the new birth, everything that has to do with Christianity, there's only two physical things that have to do with Christianity. Baptism in worship, baptism and the Lord's Supper. And both of them revolve around the deity of Jesus. In baptism, we go into the water and we pitch, we, it says we're buried with him into his death and we rise to walk in newness of life. So we actually are picturing his death, his burial, and his resurrection. We're picturing his death for the remission of our sins, and we're coming forth recognizing through that sacrifice that we have the remission of our sins. So the, the very first act that we commit as a Christian is a recognition of his death, burial, and resurrection, and his sin offering. Okay, then we partake of the Lord's Supper, and, and we have the unleavened bread, that is symbolic of the body that he gave and the blood that he shed for the remission of our sins. And so that, that the two physical acts in our worship and service and, our, and initiation into Christianity, only two of them, and they both revolve around the death and the burial and the resurrection of Christ and the fact that he is our, that, that he is our sin offering. So you can't even become a Christian in the New Testament sense without, without embracing that. Well... When we look at the commands, among sincere Christians that believe this, how many of them believe it's right to kill, right to steal, right to commit adultery, right to lie, right to cheat, right to bear false witness, right to work, use idols, right to, to take the Lord's name in vain? How many, of them, how many sincere Christians that believe in the deity of Christ that believe any of that would be right? I don't know none. There's none. What most of the time do conservative, sincere Christians differ on? Interpretations. Interpretations of, of various doctrines. Now, we could go a step further. 
we could say that, for example, that, that I'm saying that from within the fellowship of who you're going to recognize as a brother and sister in Christ, I believe anybody that is in Christ embraces the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ and his deity uh, and is repentant of his sins. That, that, person, that person is a brother or sister in, in Christ. If he's willfully sinning, then we ought to try to reach him in the proper ways as told and then withdraw fellowship. Now, if he has a misunderstanding of some point, I can recognize him as a brother or sister in Christ, but then there's other passages that teach us that we have to protect our conscience and we cannot do. In other words, if he believes in, in something in a different way than I do, and I believe he's wrong at that point, I cannot engage in something that's going to defy my conscience. And so, for example, if I believe the instrument is okay in worship, but John does not, and so here we are, uh, you know, as long as I don't cause him to defy his conscience, he and I can worship together on that point. But if he expects me to stand up and say that I believe people that have the instrument are going to hell and that their worship is vain, I can't do that. I can tell him that I can respect your conscience and I will never bring it in or, or anything of that nature. But I cannot stand up and say that I believe something is, is going to lead somebody into hell or, or, or their worship is vain unless I really believe that. And so the question is, can he fellowship me as long as I respect his conscience, even though I may differ with him on the interpretation of that doctrine? What are you using as a definition of, of fellowship? All right, fellowship is to have in common, communion. Now, last on the tape, the last time when we met, we defined it, you know, to, uh, to be in partnership. That's the meaning of the word. So if you're in partnership, uh, if you have something in common, uh, then you're, and, and if you're working together and sharing in something, uh, that is fellowship. For example, the way it's used in the New Testament, when the church at Philippi was sending financial support to Paul, and had a collection of his name, then they were having fellowship with him in that work. Uh, when we send to, to Enrique down in Mexico and support him, we are having fellowship with him in that work. You know, we're sharing, we're, we're promoting that work. Uh, we're having fellowship with John Clayton when we support that work and all. Okay, with all people that, in other words, that I'm saying there is a sense in which you're in a partnership with all people who believe in the deity of Christ and are, and are seeking to promote that. But then in the process, you recognize them as brothers and sisters in Christ. If they're willfully disobeying God, you have to withdraw fellowship. You don't recognize them and you don't want the world to recognize this person as a representative of Christ. But when it comes to people who sincerely believe that and are not willfully sinning, but yet they may be doing things that you wouldn't do because they have a difference with you, then on another level, you couldn't fellowship them in that activity. But that doesn't mean that you disassociate from recognizing them as a brother or sister in Christ. Uh, by the way, it's interesting that all through the years, conservative churches practice this in a select way. Uh, for example, as a Christian, I could never have smoked. Uh, you know, if I smoked, I would honestly have to quit. I'd have to find a way to quit. Uh, that, uh, that, I, 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 that, but yet, all through the years, I have recognized as brothers and sisters in Christ people who did smoke. 
and and uh, that I look at it as something that that was of the flesh. Uh, they probably believed they'd like to quit and just hadn't been able to. But I'm not going to sit down and smoke with them. You know, as long as I don't have to smoke with them, we're fine. Uh, a lot of them, a lot of these people that have these so-called real traditional views on fellowship, uh, they have no problem going to the beach with all of them dressed in bathing suits together in a mixed thing and being together. Uh, I can't do that. Uh, I believe that ladies should dress in a modest way and not dress in a way that is uh, outwardly provocative to the male that I believe is visually oriented when it comes to sexuality. And I believe that lusting in the heart is the same as committing adultery. I think a person, he may, be a, he may repent in his personal thing, but if he commits that in his heart, he's still done it. And so therefore, I, I personally cannot go out here and, and engage in that with people. But as long as they don't force me, try to force me to come out there with them, then I'm going to let them make their own decision in that area. And that's between them and God. Are they willfully sinning? Or do they honestly feel that that is okay and maybe it's really not a problem with them at all? Well, I'll just tell them how I feel on it, then they'll make their own decision and all. Well, we've done that all through the years, haven't we, in the church? When it comes to can a Christian defend his country in battle, we've had conscientious objectors that said, no, I can't, and we've got those that said, yes, I can. But as long as one didn't force the other to take the same position, we've let each make the the decision in keeping with his own conscience, and we have worshipped together and promoted Christianity together, and we have believed that each one could go to heaven as long as he was doing the best of his knowledge in keeping with his, his own conscience. Well, then the question becomes, what is the difference from the attitude that we have had with uh, uh, carnal warfare and these other matters? Uh, we've done the same with the Masonic Lodge. <coughs> what is the difference between that and other things? Why is it that on these areas we can say as long as a person doesn't force me to do something I can't do in good conscience, I can recognize him based on his belief in Jesus and repentance of sin and being in Christ because he's, he, he honestly believes he's right and, and he's not forcing anything on me and therefore his conscience is okay. What's the difference between that and some of the other things where we don't? Because those things are what makes different denominations distinctive. Okay. Yeah, just about uh, there, but I mean, why do they make, could we, based on the way denominations are formed, could we form a denomination based on the fact that we would make being in the Masonic Lodge or going to war a matter of fellowship? Yeah, okay. Or are there some denominations that do make it a matter of fellowship? Well, there is. Okay, are there fellowships that make tithing a matter of fellowship? There is. There, by the way, what I mentioned about the the uh, mixed swimming and all, there are groups that make that a matter of fellowship. Okay, so I'm saying some of the things that within our fellowship that we make it a matter of fellowship in the sense that we don't engage in it with that person, but we don't make it a matter of fellowship in the sense that we withdraw fellowship from him and keep ourselves from worshiping and working together as long as he respects our conscience and doesn't try to bind it on us because we allow the fact that, that he has made a judgment that we differ with and we'll let him stand before God on that on his own. Okay? But I'm saying just as we have made the decision in that area, these other people have done it and, and said that, yeah, we will make it a matter of fellowship, but then we've picked other things and said. So I'm saying that 
what denominations really do is they arbitrarily pick certain things and make them matters of fellowship, and yet they have other things they don't, and there is no denomination but that they have people in there that they are in fellowship with, that they have differences with them in any number of areas, and they don't make it a matter of fellowship. So then the question becomes, where does this criteria come from that tells us where exactly to, to draw lines of fellowship and all if we're going to get into this area that has nothing to do with direct commands of the deity of Christ, but has to do with actions where we are uh, drawing inferences and making judgmental decisions. Tradition. That's right. tradition. I think so. And, and the sad part is that we've allowed it to happen, and, and we've got a little group over here in Altamont now that they all wear black. And their cars are black. And their clothes are black, and their hats black. And uh, they live in the community there, and, and they don't have TVs. And if you didn't wear black, and if you had a TV, you couldn't be in fellowship with them. Okay, there's, they come from a group that looks on them as being liberal. You see, those I'm talking about is the Mennonites. The Mennonites, right. The Amish and the Mennonites broke fellowship. Why? The Amish are holding just to horses. And these liberals, that's right, a Mennonite is a liberal Amish. That's what he is. He's got it. He's got it. But then among the Amish, they have people that just ride horses, and they still have differences on some other particular point. That, that this kind of attitude all through the centuries has caused division among conservative believers, and it's this attitude that somebody has the right that whenever you have made a judgmental decision on some particular point, that somebody else has to agree with that you persuade a certain group, like I could persuade you all maybe on some point, and then we withdraw fellowship from everybody that differs with us on that, and then we convert into our group and we grow. But yet we would always have certain things that we differed on. On, on that point. So I'm glad to get away from that and stack in the clause. And yeah. the corner by yourself, home by uh, yourself. Yeah, if you're going to, the only way you'll have a point where you have somebody agrees with you on every single judgment area is to, is to go like the two brethren we mentioned to start, you know, closet by yourself. For example, when it comes to the mixed uh, bathing and the gals wearing short shorts and things like that, to me, that is so obvious that I don't understand why everybody can't see it. Well, when I became a, a Christian, and I, I didn't approach Christian Christianity from a Christian background, but when I became a Christian, and I used to go, I used to go swimming uh, as a teenager, and, and I knew why I went swimming. Uh, that when I went out to swim, I didn't know how to swim. I didn't know how to swim until I went in the Marine Corps. I went swimming because I liked to look at the girls. That was it. Take away the girls, and I wasn't going to be out there. I mean, uh, those guys lift all the weights they want to, and I never got any kick out of look, looking at guys. <laughs> but I was out there for one reason, and that's the enjoyment that I got out of seeing these gals run around in the in the bathing suits and things like that. And I always enjoyed summer and the, the short shorts and the whole bit, you know. Well, in that, when I heard a preacher began to talk about lust 